Welcome. Welcome to JavaScript Jam Live. <laughs> yes, this is Scott. We were just saying we got the maestro with the mic back. Yeah, welcome <laughs> back, Scott. The maestro. Yeah, I'm a little rusty here. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you all so much. And we also got Dan Shapiro up here with us. Thank you so much, Dan, for joining us. It's going to be a great conversation. I made sure to get Ishan up here as well because you two have many shared loves and interests around performance. Oh, I am I am so excited, Dan, you're here today, just given your background in performance. So thanks for joining us today. Why don't we start with a round of intros, and then we'll intro our guest. And we'll go from there. I'm Ishan, VP of product at Edgeo and co-host of JavaScript Jam Live. JavaScript Jam Live is a open mic. We like to say on anything JavaScript or web development related. If you are a beginner or you're an expert, we want to hear from you. Don't feel shy. Feel free to raise your hand at the bottom of the space. And we're happy to talk about anything and everything web development or JavaScript related. As Anthony mentioned, we have a special guest today. I'll let Anthony introduce himself and then we'll hand over Dan to introduce him. My name is Anthony Campolo, developer advocate at Edgeo. And yeah, we'll be talking about performance, hydration, partial hydration, the future of client side frameworks. I think this is a big, heady topic, but it's something that I've been following now for really over a year or so. And Dan's got a great talk he's been working on in this same area. So yeah, feel free to introduce yourself, Dan, let our listeners know who you are, what you do, where you work, all that kind of stuff. Hopefully we've got Dan with us. As, as you guys said, my name is Dan Shapir. I'm really happy to be here. I've been doing software development in general and web development in particular for a really long time. I'm currently the performance tech lead at Next Insurance and InsureTech Unicorn. I'm also an invited expert on the W3C Web Performance Working Group. And I'm a host and panelist on the JavaScript Jabber podcast, where happily we've had Anthony, for example, as a guest. Yeah, and that's uh, really, it's my, I think, the premier JavaScript podcast, should I say, as someone who runs a JavaScript podcast, it's been going now for, man, 13 years. You can actually go back and listen to the creator of Knockout and Backbone have an argument, or, you know, Ember and Backbone have an argument, <laughs> like, about which is a better <laughs> framework. So it's a really incredible historical resource and a really incredible current resource for everything going on in JavaScript. Just to say that I've not been there for 13 years. I joined JavaScript Jabber three years ago, but Chuck, who founded the whole Top End Devs Network, is still going strong, and so is AJ, who's been there from the start, as I recall. That's right, yeah. Yeah, it's a great podcast. I was just listening to the episode you did the other day on hydration. And as Anthony mentioned, I heard you've got a talk you're workshopping around on partial hydration. Do you want to just give us like what the abstract, the pitch would be for the audience who may not have a full understanding of everything on that? Happily, this talk has actually been accepted to at least one conference so far. So it's been accepted to the React Next the conference in Israel, which is a fairly large conference with something like a thousand participants. So I'm really excited about that. It's actually a talk where I compare various ways in which modern frameworks are trying to overcome the overhead and cost of hydration. 
in terms of performance. So partial hydration is one option. There are several others. And I just basically go through each and every one describing the benefits and limitations of each of them. Do you want to explain for anybody in the audience or who listens to the recording later who doesn't know what hydration is if they're maybe coming from as a total beginner? Just explain, set the stage for the problem before we dive in a little more deeper on it. Oh, sure thing. So the issue is this. We are using today frameworks like React, like Vue, that were created for the single page application approach. That means you put the JavaScript, you then download the data, and then the JavaScript builds the user interface on the client side and all the navigation also happens on the client side. Now, this was done in order to make the behavior of these websites or web apps more application-like because you don't need to have a full page refresh whenever you're transitioning between pages. For example, you can update parts and of the page independently as it were of each other and that's great but it turns out that this approach really had the problem in terms of the initial performance of loading the page because if you're just building a client-side rendered single page application it means that for the initial content to be displayed you first need to download an HTML, which is usually effectively just a blank page. It's a body with nothing in it, just a couple of script tags that just get the ball rolling. Then you need to download all the scripts. Then you need to download the data using some sort of JAX fetch request, something like that. Only then do you actually construct the HTML on the client side, and then the content starts downloading. So images and fonts and whatnot. So the result is that the actual visual content is the last thing to load. And that obviously results in a really bad initial experience in terms of performance. Contrast that with how the web works by default, which is all the content in the HTML, which means that as the HTML streams down, the browser is actually able to parse the HTML even before it finishes completely downloading, identify resources that are referenced from it, like images and fonts, or CSS and start downloading them immediately as it encounters them. The result of this is that with single page application, when they're client side rendered, the initial load performance is measured by largest contentful paint or even first contentful paint is pretty abysmal. To overcome this problem or this limitation, frameworks introduce the concept of SSR or server-side rendering, and also G, which is static site generation. Basically, it means that instead of just downloading an empty page and doing everything on the client side, you actually use the exact same code it used to be called isomorphic code, but I don't hear that term used a lot anymore or even at all. But anyway, it runs the exact same code on the server side, either at runtime, which is SSR, or even at build time, which is E, to generate the initial view. So the HTML to begin with actually is fully constructed in terms of its content. And so the browser can do its thing and start downloading resources as soon as it encounters them, which is great. So with SSR or SSG, the view performance 
is effectively, as you could say, as good as it is with multi-page applications. But the problem is that the HTML that is downloaded is just like totally static, not dynamic. All the interactivity that's created by the JavaScript is not actually hooked up. It's like the a picture of the page, as it were, rather than the actual functioning page. Because what happens is that when the framework runs on the server, again, either at runtime or at build time, and generates the HTML, the state of the framework of the application is not actually sent down to the client, just the resulting HTML. So all the event handlers aren't hooked up, all the components aren't defined, all this stuff is just not there. And in order to get the interactivity, you actually need to go through a process called hydration, which effectively means rerunning all the JavaScript that you ran on the server side again on the client side, just to in order to recreate the initial state of the application. So you need to effectively download all the JavaScript that you had on the server, run all the JavaScript that you had on the server, not to update the DOM, the HTML stays the same, but just to hook up the event handlers to recreate the initial framework and application state. And that is called hydration. And hey, you Dan, could say- Dan, for a quick second? Sure, oh, for sure. sure. Ramble on for forever <laughs> if yeah, you don't interrupt no, me. No, it's all good. Just, the only thing is like your gain is really loud right now. Are you able to move mm. the mic a little bit away from you? Yeah, I will. Cool. Yeah, then that'll help. How about this? Cool. Can I hear Ishan talk a little bit real quick? I thought that was a great summary of the problem of hydration. How's that comparatively on volume? A little bit better. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So I am... Oh, go ahead, Dan. Keep going. No. So what I was saying is that just to finish the story, so why is hydration problematic? Okay. So we didn't download the JavaScript and run it again. We already have the visible page, so at least the user sees the page really quickly. And effectively, it has this kind of optimistic approach, attitude to it, which says something, a person visits the page for the first time, they don't know exactly where things are, what to click, it takes them a few seconds to orient themselves on this page. Hopefully, during that time, we can finish the hydration process. And then by the time that the user actually tries to interact, everything is ready to go and the performance seems to be great. Problem is, that's not always the case. First of all, some users try to interact with a page fairly quickly before the hydration actually finishes occasionally even before the hydration even gets to start. Other times, it's just that there's just so much JavaScript in the application that the hydration just takes a long time. And again, the user tries to interact with the page before hydration finishes. And finally, Alex Russell, who we also had on the JavaScript Jabber podcast, talks a lot about the current digital divide. The fact that in the mobile web, there's a huge difference between the devices that people like us tend to use, which are the latest iPhones, and the devices that a lot of our users actually have, which are mid-range or even low-end Android devices. And there's like an order of magnitude difference, not twice, not three times, order of magnitude difference in terms of performance 
between these devices. So hydration might be really quick on your brand new iPhone with your G connection, but it could be pretty abysmal on somebody's low-end Android device with their slow 4G connection. So that so the upshot of all this is that in many cases, hydration doesn't actually finish before the user tries to interact with the page. And like I said, in some cases, it doesn't even get to start. What happens then is that when the user actually tries to interact with it, the page doesn't respond because it's not done, it's not finished hydrating. And in many ways, that's actually even worse than poor performance because it's effectively an unresponsive page. It results in things like rage clicks when people try to repeatedly click a button. And sometimes it then catches multiple clicks of that button eventually, and that's pretty bad. For example, if it's a purchase button, or maybe it just totally ignores that person. And if somebody tries to interact with a page and the page is broken and doesn't respond to their interactions, then you know what? They'll just leave. And that's the problem with hydration. Yeah, thank you. I am so glad that you are talking about this and bringing attention to it. Because for me personally, I have a background in performance as well. And it's felt like over the last few years, like a slow moving crap where the ecosystem in the front end ecosystem was throwing more and more JavaScript. And it almost felt like ignoring the problem. I remember back in, I think it was 2018 or 2019 when we were working on React Storefront, which was a framework for e-commerce. And we had to introduce uh, lazy hydration because the cost of hydration on certain pages was hurting effectively the LCP. And so the largest contentful page for the audience who isn't familiar with that metric. And it just feels like only recently we've started to see the ecosystem in the newer frameworks start tackling this. Do you feel like that's an accurate characterization? Yes or no? And if you agree, why do you think it, we're only suddenly, I think there's more news about it and it seems like there's more frameworks that are trying to solve this now, like solid and quick than we've seen, let's say, a few, like four or five years ago. To be fair, I think that four or five years ago, most websites weren't even using SSR or SSG. The problem didn't exist, not because the hydration isn't problematic, but simply because hydration wasn't even used. I think that it's only thanks to the more modern meta frameworks or rendering frameworks, as they're now occasionally called, that we're actually getting to this world where we have SSR and E. Try to think about when you heard the term Gemstack for the first time. And now again, it's another term that we'd hardly uh, hear I anymore. Oddly. <laughs> exactly. But I think it, it Netlify started pushing it something like four or five years ago, maybe I think six. It was 20, but 2016. No, 2015, 2015 is when it was the term was officially debuted in a talk. And then obviously, like, it took years to actually pick up steam. But yeah, 2015 is when Matt gave his first talk about it. Yeah, exactly. And if we're looking at the React world, I don't think R was so widespread before Next.js became the big thing. So it's really the issue that we didn't encounter the problem because we were stuck on the previous problem. 
of really bad performance with client-side rendered applications. And by the way, if you're using a solution like WordPress, for example, then you know there's no React, there's no hydration, there's no nothing. It's just a multi-page application and it's not even an issue. I actually, so, that, that makes a lot of sense. Back when we were encountering that, it was before Next was as big as it was, and we were basically hand-rolling server-side rendering ourselves, and it was really hard to do. And people stopped doing that and just said, let's start using Next or Jamstack. Sorry, go ahead. No, I totally agree with what you said. These days, you've got a couple of options. Even in the React world, you can even you can do it with the Next. You can do it with Remix. You can even do it by yourself with Vite. But none of these actually existed. Something like uh, really widespread, in, certainly not in widespread use five years ago. So it's a relatively new problem. We actually encountered it earlier than most when I was working at Wix. Before I worked at Next Insurance, I was actually mm -hmm. the performance tech lead at Wix. And Wix started doing SSR earlier than most. Wix is using its own custom proprietary meta framework because its use case is like really different than most. So we encountered this problem earlier. We started doing SSR, as I recall, something like 2018 or something like that. And that's when we started encountering this problem. So we ran into it first, but it just took the market a while to get there. Yeah, I included my blog post about partial hydration that Scott linked up top. And I run through the history of this. And most people don't really know this. And it's still, unfortunately, not a very well-known framework. But I found Marco is one of the first I could find that when going back all the way to 2014, started taking this problem really seriously and implementing things that are essentially what today we call partial hydration. And then there was like a six year dead zone where like you had SSR and regular hydration, but it wasn't until things like Astro started coming around where it was like, okay, how do we selectively decide what JavaScript we wanna ship and which JavaScript we don't wanna ship? So this gets us into the islands architecture, which we should probably define next. Uh, By the way, it's through, yeah, the different solutions. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, I just wanted to say it's a funny thing that like Marco more or less innovated everything, which is funny since not so many people know about this framework. It given the fact that it's oh, it's not a proprietary eBay framework. It's open source. It's out there. But I, as I understand it, it's hardly used outside of eBay. But yeah, yeah I'm doing my best to tell everyone I can about it <laughs> as frequently as possible. Yeah, it definitely innovated a whole lot of things. Like almost any new and innovative feature that some framework comes out with, you say, ah, yeah, but Marco did it first a few years ago. Yeah, it's funny time. <laughs> anyway. So yeah, okay, so these days we have this problem with hydration where one of the, so like I said, the main problem that hydration is causing from my perspective is that the page is effectively broken until the hydration finishes. But there are additional problems, like you mentioned. For example, it can actually hurt the visibility metrics, even though the content is in the original HTML, because you've got competition for the bandwidth. Because in your in while downloading the main image, for example, you also need to download all that JavaScript to make the page interactive. And the problem with the naive approach to hydration is that you download 
all the same code that you had on the server because you need to run everything. And because the application after that first page becomes the single page application, which means that for all the subsequent pages, everything is client side. So you're basically, you need all that code on the client. So you download a lot of code, especially in this reality of NPM, where you pull in some library and you pull in the entire internet. It seems. Yeah. yeah. So you very often see JavaScript bundles in the hundreds of kilobytes or even few megabytes that despite the fact that they're minified and gzipped. So that's a lot of bandwidth contention for the actual visual resources that you need. So yeah, that's another problem with it. So definitely. Yeah, go on. You know, I was going to ask you, like, of the frameworks out there, should we start classifying the different approaches to solving this, whether React server components or what Solid is doing? And yeah. So let's do a quick rundown. The first approach that you can think of is the obvious one, which is just don't use a framework. Like I said, if you're doing your website in WordPress, and then you could care less about this whole problem because it just doesn't exist. And it seems flippant for me to say it, but if you talk to, again, to Alex Russell, he'll tell you that in many cases, this is actually the preferable approach. Use some server-side technology, do the page as a multi-page application, and in many cases, that, that's enough. If you need a little bit of interactivity, do it in jQuery. And you know what? It's it feels backward. It feels it leaves a sour taste in your, our mouths as JavaScript developers, but it works. And very often it has better performance. And by the way, WordPress is still 40% of the web. It's three times all the frameworks put together. Yeah, we should. Anyway. I'm just going to jump in here for some context on who Alex Russell is for the audience, who, by the way, actually has been on the JavaScript Jam podcast. We have an episode with him in the archives if you go to the website. But he was on the Chrome team. He's now part of the Edge team. And he was one of the folks who coined the term progressive web app. The point of all this is to say, this is not somebody who's anti-JavaScript by any means, but he's just thinking about the problem user first. Sorry, keep going, Dan. I just wanted to... No, exactly. You're absolutely correct. He's also been one of the driving forces for Project Fugu, which is about bringing a lot of modern capabilities into JavaScript, being able to... Didn't you work on talk... too? You work on AMP, right? Potentially, I try yeah. to ignore the fact that AMP ever yeah, existed. I, say, I don't think he's apologizing. Oh, oh, wait, maybe we should tackle that one at the end. I have to say, I think AMP is probably the, and I gave a talk at Cascadia JS on this. AMP, in my mind, is one of the most misunderstood frameworks. So I'd love to, to drill into that live at some point, but let's get to yeah, All I can say is that I've not really had to ever deal with AMP in my during my career so i don't really have a lot to say about it but anyway moving on so we said one option is just basically don't use a framework and the next option is basically saying let's use something called progressive hydration the the idea here is that i use built-in features and functionalities of the browser to provide some sort of fallback functionality until the hydration actually finishes. For example, if there's a form on a page, if hydration is done, then the form is handled by JavaScript. But, if I, but before hydration is done, the form just works as a regular HTML form, which means that if you click the submit button after hydration, it works as a single page application. 
But if you click the submit button before hydration, then it will actually work like a multi-page application with an entire page refresh. But it will still work, which is a big benefit because, like I said, the big problem with hydration is that Otherwise, before hydration, nothing actually works. And one of the one of the frameworks that kind of innovated this approach is Remix. I know that a lot of others have adopted it now. I think Svelte uses this approach as well today. The thing about it, though, is there are still two issues with it. One of them, actually, even just to comment, Remix even takes it to to the next step, which is to say you can even configure the Remix not to download the JavaScript at all and not to do any hydration and just use these fallbacks, So, in which case Remix works like a multi-page application. Again, like the PHP application, only with JavaScript on the back end instead of PHP, which kind of brings up the whole issue with this approach, which is if I can get good enough behavior and interactivity without JavaScript, then why am I even doing this whole JavaScript thing? And alternatively, if I can't get the behavior that I want without JavaScript, then it isn't really a solution is it? So that's a limitation with this approach. Another limitation with this approach is that the hydration process is like, by default, it was this kind of long running JavaScript function, like hydrate everything. You call this function, it hydrates the entire page until it's done. And as we all know, while a long running JavaScript function is running, the event loop or the main thread is blocked. So even if you have this fallback functionality, it won't actually respond while the hydration process is actually running. Now that is addressed by splitting up or breaking up the hydration code into parts, into sections. We talked about partial hydration or there are other terms for it. It it escapes me right now. But basically breaking up this long running or single hydration code into parts, it could be like just break it into 50 milliseconds parts or run until a user interacts and then you can actually even detect it on the new Chrome browsers. So that's the other approach. The problem with that is that changing the framework to support this kind of breaking up of the hydration process into parts, turns out that's hard to do, which is one of the reasons why React 18 is just like failing to ever be released. Think about when React 18 was first announced and where are we now? What is it, three years? Yeah, uh, maybe we should clarify. There's well, it has been released. It's out right now. Is it a beta though, or is it official or no. release candidate? No, what is it? It's officially official. It was released beta either last year or the year before, and then it's actually officially released now. And I know this because the Redwood's trying to integrate it right now because we were holding off until it was actually officially released. Yeah, but some parts of it I think still aren't completely done, like the React server components. I think aren't officially well, fully I done. I think you're thinking of maybe Next, like with Next, they've integrated it, but they're still saying it's beta within the meta framework. Within React proper, though, they consider it fully released as far as I know. Anyway, yeah, 
potentially. But it took a long time in whichever way you look at it. And part of the reason is that doing this, and it also requires an effort from the developer because you need to create all these suspense boundaries that, that didn't exist before. I joke that the way to tell a modern web app from a legacy web app is that these days in startup, instead of one big spinner, we have lots and lots of little spinners because all of these suspense boundaries that become hydrate or become interactive separately or even become visible separately. Anyway, so that's that. Another approach that we have is the one that you mentioned, which is islands, which I believe the person who made this term popular, although he might not have coined it, is Jason Miller, who created Preact. And I think he was the one of the first ones pushing it. I know that it now is used predominantly in Astro and also in Fresh, which is a framework built on Dino with Preact. Maybe it's used in other places. I'm, I know that Ryan Corniato from Solid is looking at it, but I don't think it's actually implemented in Solid Start. I might be mistaken. But anyway, the approach of islands basically comes from thought that says that when you look at the modern, even in the web apps, but certainly in websites, which are primarily content sites, the majority of the page is actually fairly static or totally static. Think about a blog post. The blog post itself, you just read it. It's totally static. There's the title, the image, let's say, the content itself, and that's it. The only interactive parts of a blog post page might be, I don't know, a like button and maybe the comments section. That's more or less it. That's not the primary content of the page. Are you with me on that? Yes. And in e-commerce background where we, I typically have dealt with this, it's like, Certain parts like the image carousel, but the copy and description of the product aren't aren't interactive. You either read it or not. And so why are we yeah. executing that JavaScript just to make that everything for that component in memory when it just can sit there in the DOM as it is and not have to change? And even the carousel can be more or less just done with CSS, in which case it's also effectively static in a sense. Yeah. Uh, the only really dynamic part of the page would be, I don't know, the purchase button and the shopping cart icon. Yeah. That's more or less the only dynamic parts or the really dynamic parts on the page. So if you're looking at a page like that, you're saying, why am I hydrating everything? Why am I downloading and running the JavaScript code that generates the blog post from the raw data, let's say in the CMS, when there's no interactivity associated with it. What's the point? Why am I doing all the, why do I have all this effort? So the whole concept of islands is saying, let's generate the static part the old way on the server side, like we did with PHP, and just we'll specifically denote those dynamic parts as parts that require interactivity and hence require hydration. So only those parts are actually done, let's say, as React components or view components or whatever, 
only they actually get hydrated. And once I take this approach, I can even be like smart about it and say, I'll first hydrate those components that are in the initial visible area and the parts that are below the fold, I'll only hydrate them if and when the user actually scrolls down the page or something like that. And when I take this approach, then obviously the amount of JavaScript and the amount of work that I need to do is dramatically reduced. And, and like actually- I said- the approach yeah. took in React Storefront with Lazy Hydrate. It was basically like, let's wait for things to scroll into view, and then we'll hydrate those pieces. Sorry, keep going. No, yeah. So it's a great approach. And for example, Astro does it really nicely. And like I said, Fresh uses it as well. And like you said, you can also have custom implementations of this approach. But there are also problems with this. The two main problems that I see is first, you need to be a multi-page application because the whole idea is that you're not downloading all the JavaScript that's required for the entire site and that the majority of the site is actually rendered on the server side. So every time you actually navigate between pages, you actually need to go back to the server to get the next page. And, and effectively even download the JavaScript again. Now, it's, that's not as bad as it seems because it's probably, let's say, cached in the browser cache or the CDN or whatever. But it, still, you, we introduced React and Vue and Angular and whatnot to do single-page applications, to have state that persists in the client side between pages to avoid this page refresh whenever we move between pages And now we are back to that. So that's the limitation. That's the main limitation that I see with, oh, for sure. Yeah, so I think that's an accurate characterization of how it's implemented in Astro and some of these other like frameworks because they are built for multi-page apps. I, if I recall correctly, when we did this in React Storefront, we made sure the router itself still came along. It was effectively, that part was fixed. And the other parts were islands, so we were able to maintain a single-page app feel. But you still didn't get as great a benefit as you might get from Astro, where it doesn't need to pull the router down. But I guess I, I just separate that out as not tied to the islands concept necessarily. It just happens to be the way it gets implemented. I actually would, be, and I'll tell you why. Yeah. Tell because me. think, forget, put aside the routing code, for example. Think about the next page, the static part of the next page. Where is it rendered? On the client side or on the server side? The, you're going to have to render it client side, so you need to pull that code ahead of time. Uh, yeah. So, effect- so, so effectively, it during idle. Sorry, yeah. So effectively, it's not really client. So it's islands for the first page, but effectively, you end up downloading all the JavaScript of all the applications. So I don't know if I'd fully call it islands. It's somewhere in the middle between islands approach and the selective hydration approach, where the sun. Okay. It's a classification. We just are classifying it differently. Okay. That makes sense. Which brings us to the next approach, which is similar, which is why a lot of people actually confuse it with one another or conflate it, which is the approach of server components. Currently, it's called React Server Components because I think React is really the only framework that officially implements this approach. 
maybe Marco does as well. I don't know how they call it. Marco implements everything. But in, in terms of a released mainstream framework, as far as I know, only React implements it. So instead of server components, we call it React Server Components or RSC. And this approach is similar to the island's edge in that you the static components are rendered or the static content part of the page is rendered on the server side and the only the code for the dynamic parts needs to actually be downloaded so you get the same benefits as islands the difference is that it is a single page application and that means that like we said the router codes actually downloads and then when you navigate to the second page that kind of seems to need to happen on the client side. But here's the funny thing. Even though the client, the navigation to the second page happens on the client side, with the router being on the client side, the static parts of the second page are actually rendered on the server. So the client is actually able to go to the server and get additional HTML from the server. And that's implemented by these server components. In fact, the root of the page is a server component. So effectively, the router goes back to the server, gets the root content of the page with the HTML and data for the interactive components in it, and then integrates everything together, which is requires a lot of magic. And it's difficult to do, which is, again, a reason why it has taken React such a long time to come out with React. Mm -hmm. But once it works, it really is magic in the sense that you've got a single page application, all the functionality that you're used to with React. You don't have to mess about with keeping all your state on the server side. You can keep state on the client side, especially component state, and it flows between pages and that's all great. But you still avoid downloading a whole lot of HTML that's associated with the static stuff, HTML and data that's associated with the static stuff. You don't need to hydrate those parts on the client side. So it sounds like a perfect solution, but it turns out that there are problems with it. The two main problems that I see with this approach, first, is that it, it like I said, it's a lot of magic. It's really difficult to implement all this stuff in React. And as a result, React itself has increased in size in order to provide this functionality. And it might turn out that all that you've all the savings that you've made potentially from keeping your code on the server side are potentially offset by React code that needs to be downloaded and run on the client side in order to support this mechanism. So one step so that's, two steps back. Yeah. Now I get I understand that's not true by definition. I know again Ryan Corniato from Solid has said that he's looking at ways to implement this approach that are much, much lighter weight. And time will tell. If he does, then maybe hopefully everybody will follow his lead. But but that's one problem with it. The second problem right with for for a second. Yeah. Hand. 
We gotta usually do a station break around this time just to encourage people to come up and ask questions. Oh, for sure. Do that? Like I said, I will talk forever if you let me. Yeah, I've listened to your podcast many times. No worries. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing all that so far, and we look forward to continuing to hear more from you, Dan. This is really great. It's been a wonderful time. Thank you all so much for joining us today. This is JavaScript GM Live. We do this every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. We have awesome guests like Dan today and so many others. We also have this kind of open mic kind of process that we do as well, which we're about to get really into here shortly, where you can come up to the stage and ask questions. Please just request to come on up. We would love to hear from everybody, whether you're a beginner or whether you've been doing this forever. It doesn't matter we would love to hear from everybody. In fact, that's how we get most value out of this and to the folks listening get the most value out of this is from people participating in this as well. One last thing I want to shout out there real quick is if you have not subscribed to our newsletter at JavaScriptGM.com, please go to JavaScriptGM.com and subscribe to that newsletter because it has all this amazing information, upcoming things that are happening in the JavaScript and web development world, including who we're going to be talking with and links available there as well. So, Please check that out if you haven't already. Thank you so much, and we're going to continue the rest of our talk. And we got Mishko up here with us. Mishko working on his own framework known as Quick, which is very deep into these specific problems that we've been talking about. So um, do you have a question for Dan, Mishko? Wait, I'm sorry, I have to figure out how to use this thing. Yes, I do. I actually want to hear his perspective on Quick. I don't want to say anything about quick do not want to like take the discussion somewhere else but i would love to see where do you think it falls into this space what is it doing well not doing well etc just would love to hear the thoughts yeah i'm so glad yeah. that was literally going to be the question i was going to ask after the station break so i'm so glad you're here to ask it and by the way for context for listeners not only misko is working on quick sorry but quick you might have told dan can you mute yourself right now you got some background dog noise it sounds like yeah you, uh, I'll be done. Say you might have heard of this framework, Angular, that also owes to Misco's creation. So definitely, granddaddy in in the ecosystem. Angular JS, sorry, the original, the OG. But Dan, uh, actually, I'm both, really both Angular and Angular JS. Oh, okay, great. I learned something today. But Dan, I'm really curious to hear your answer to to his question. What do you think of resumability <laughs> and Quick? Yeah, I was basically saving the, the best for last, as it were, so I just didn't get to <laughs> resumability yet. So I, just to clarify to the audience, resumability is an approach which effectively solves the hydration problem by just doing away with hydration. That instead of running all the React code on the client side or whatever, the framework code on the client side in order to regenerate the initial state, it just serializes that and it does it creates that initial state on the server, but instead of throwing it away, it effectively serializes it and then downloads it as needed to be used on the client side directly without needing to regenerate it again with this whole process of hydration. So resumability solves the problem by doing away completely with hydration. Am I presenting it correctly, Mishko? Yeah, sorry, Hello? I'm looking for the unmute button. Sorry, I apologize, looking for the unmute button. Yes, you did. That's a good way of, of looking at it. So the so there from my perspective, there are two issues with resumability. One, it's the fact that it's simply just so new. It it might be the best thing since sliced bread, but we just don't have that much experience with it in the field. And all the problems and limitations that we are like familiar with the 
older approaches are just not there yet. Maybe they exist, maybe they don't, but we just don't know yet. So that's problem number one. Problem number two is that it requires a new framework. You can't take an existing framework and then monkey patch resumability into it. The framework needs to be designed for resumability from the ground up, which is exactly why Mishko created, and again, correct me if I'm stating this incorrectly, but why you created Quick instead of, let's say, refactoring Angular to provide resumability because Angular just wasn't designed with resumability in mind when it was created. And you can't retrofit this into the existing architecture. Is this a correct representation? Yes, it is. You're spot on. And consequently, it means that if you have a project implemented, let's say, in React, the only way to get resumability is effectively to rewrite it in Quick, which means you need to learn Quick and then do all the work of eventually migrating all the code. I'm saying eventually because I believe you guys created a way for actually using at least some React components inside React. I'm pinning a bunch of stuff to the thread right now related to this. I'm going to include the JavaScript Jabber interview you two did, and I'll add a link to Quick React as well. Which can certainly mitigate the the hassle or the effort, but still, if you want to get the complete or the total benefit and of completely doing away with hydration and getting all the benefits of Quick, then eventually you want to strive to this point that everything will be done in Quick. And that's, and that's an issue, first of all, because, like I said, it entails the effort of a rewrite. Now, that's not the end of the world. I mentioned that I worked at Wix. At Wix, we actually rewrote the entire Wix web stack while I was there three times. We did a complete rewrite three times while I was there. So it's doable. And sometimes it's a lot better than just trying to bang on this uh, ex the ex existing thing that you have and ju just trying to patch it again and again. But it's still an effort. And it's also the effort of learning this new thing, of understanding the concept. Now, we really enjoy learning new stuff, at least I do. But it's again, it's still an effort that you have to put in. And a lot of people are using React because it's the safe choice. You don't get fired for picking React and Next. And if the project fails, you can say, well, I picked next. That's what everybody's using. When you're using a new framework, you're obviously taking more of a chance, as it were. So those are the downsides that, I'm, that I see. Now, they're not so much technological as conceptual, but they exist. They certainly exist. I have meetings with our customers, and they ask us for our opinion. And when we discuss this, it certainly comes up. They're like, React is the bigger ecosystem. We really like, you know, what, for example, Quick is doing, but it's not like at 1.0 yet. Can, you know, if they're going to change that API surface area before they get to 1.0, we might want to wait to rewrite it. So what, in that context, when, you know, somebody asks you, what should we do? Let's say I'm somebody who's starting with a net new, I haven't built any code yet. What would you recommend they do? And then let's take somebody who's got a legacy React-based website, what do you recommend in both of those two cases? Oh, man. You're... <laughs> That's... I'm going to use the terrible answer. It depends. That's what I'm because... super curious. After you give your answer, I'd be curious to hear Bishko's response as well. Yes, yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, it, it depends because it depends on the size of the application. It depends on the team that you have. It depends on whether it's mostly a content site or it's more dynamic or maybe it's content now, but expected to potentially become dynamic later on. By the way, again, going back to Alex, we seem to go, be going back a lot to him today. But when I try to distinguish between websites and web apps, I really like the distinction that he makes, which is based on the depth of the interactions. If it's only like two, three, four, I don't know, up to 10 or something like that, then it's a web site. If you expect the person to do 50, 100 more interactions, then it's actually a web app. So... It depends on which one of those it is. If it's a web site, maybe you should do it in Astro, or maybe you should just even do it in Wix, because that will be so much easier. Sorry, go ahead, and I'll no. You, you ask your follow. So, please well, do. We have Theo, the listener. He's also been a frequent guest. Him and Alex Russell had a debate on React that was televised on YouTube, and in that they said e-commerce was an example. So let's pick that, but also selfishly is a lot of our market. So imagine it's a website that's e-commerce enterprise, but has a team of React developers. Let's make use that as a specific example. What would you recommend in that situation? Again, it depends. I might, there's a good, it, there's a good chance that I might just recommend Shopify because unless there are some really unique requirements in your website, why not? Let's it's an enterprise site. And they're, they're outgrown, say, Shopify. Yeah, by, by the way, there are not that many enterprise sites that actually really outgrow Shopify. We all think that we'll be selling like millions and millions of whatever, but most of us don't. And even when we do, I find that a lot of custom sites aren't actually as performance, as scalable, as secure, and as robust as a Wix or a Shopify site. I'm sorry to say, but it's the reality. Another point, though, that I want to make, it's great that Theo is on. I tweeted recently, I really love the video that Theo created with this whole diagram of choosing the best uh, like tool for the job, the decision tree that uh, Theo made. And I totally agree with all the decision points that he put in there. My main caveat or comment or commentary on this decision tree is that from my experience, most web developers or even most developers like to pick a tool and use that single tool for everything. They know React, they like React, React, they'll build everything with React. And you know what? It works. So why not? And having to learn 10 different technologies just so that we can use the best tool for the job or even four, that's, I don't see it that often. Most web devs, devs that I know don't work that way. And we got the man himself come up got, yeah. to defend his decisions. Howdy. Yeah. Thanks for having me on quick. I'm supposed to be live, but I'm currently ironing a shirt and super behind. But yeah, I totally agree with the <laughs> devs to know one thing. It's actually a problem I run into a lot as a person who likes to experiment with lots of different things. Like I've built in three different frameworks in the last two days just because I wanted to play with some stuff. I think that my video specifically was built around that. I even got into some shit because I specifically was going at the angle of a React bro, as I called it. Like the goal was to make the best possible diagram given that you currently React some amount. How would I, like, I as a person who prefers React and as a team that mostly prefers React, 
here is how I make decisions for the meta frameworks around React. I don't necessarily agree that the same like mindset of use one tool for the job should apply for meta frameworks the way it does for the core JavaScript frameworks. Like you can use React with Beat, with Astro, with Next, with Remix, with Preact instead of React. You have a lot of these other options that allow you to still the React mindset of learn once, write anywhere instead of write once, run everywhere. I agree that it's easier to migrate from one React meta framework to another than it is potentially to migrate from one framework to another with a complete different mindset of how the framework works. Although, as I recall, you did mention Svelte in that video as an option. But even with meta frameworks, I think it can be challenging. Next.js it's become like a monster. What with server components being effectively a Next feature more than they are a React feature in a way, because you can't really use them effectively. Effectively, you can't really use them without a meta framework. So you really need to buy to this whole mindset. And then and once you bind to that, then it turns out that there's quite a big difference between, I think, between building a web application in, in Astro, let's say, with Islands, or in React with, in Next with React server components, even though, like we said, theoretically, Islands and server components are supposedly really similar. It's really funny you bring up islands specifically because the only reason I feel like I've been able to get around server components and understand them at all is because Astro feels almost identical to server components in terms of the immediate DX. I've been very surprised at how much overlap there is in like the mindset between those two things. I would say new next with server components and Astro are more closely related than old next and remix or even new next and remix. But there's a lot of mindset overlap. But don't you find, for example, the whole concept now with Next, the fact that all components are server components by default, and this whole use client specifier, and the fact that the server components can be async, or and often will be async, whereas client-side components cannot be async, or the fact that client components actually also run on the server, which is an interesting thing, a funny misnomer. Anyway, Next is a framework for backend code. Next is a way to run code on the server. React now can be run more easily on the server, and Next is the introducing the paradigms they're choosing to run with. I think that if you think of these meta frameworks as backend frameworks that build DOMs and build front-end code, and then the front-end framework takes over from there, it's a lot easier to understand how these decisions are made. And what I see here more than anything is Next doubling down on their direction as a quote-unquote back-end framework. Oh, I totally agree with that. push on what Dan's saying, though, what you're saying is you have to change your perspective. Does the rest of the the ecosystem looks at React potentially the other way, I think is the question. Do you agree with that or disagree with that? I, when you say the ecosystem looks at React a different way, what do you mean specifically? Do you think people look at React and Next and think about it as a back-end framework, the way you said it, or do they think about it as a front-end? The most popular video on Vercel's YouTube channel is my tech talk about how Next is a back-end framework, so it's titled Next.js as a back-end framework. So whether or not the mindset is in one place, I'm actively working to shift it the other way because that's what all of these things are. Like Quick and Quick City are back-end frameworks. Nux is a back-end framework. Astro in particular is exclusively a back-end framework. Astro has no real control over what happens yes. once the page has made it to the user. And I think it's important that as front-end engineers, 
We recognize the backend implementation details, costs, and consequences of the way that we build. And I feel like that's been missed for a long time. And it's partially because of single page apps. Like for me, the MPA revolution of going back to MPAs isn't in SPAs are evil and bad. It's, oh, I, as the front end engineer, can make intelligent backend decisions to build the best experience for my user. I, I, you're, you're preaching to the choir on this. So I was I'm just saying, say, this is another thing Redwood was way ahead yeah. of the curve on, which we we're yeah. probably never going to get credit for, but I digress. Continue on. I guess what I'm saying is it, that to me is a recognition that people look at it as a front end framework. Like, they don't think of it that way. And that's the mindset shift that needs to happen. It's really funny how, how what comes around goes around. You know, this whole move from multi-page applications to single-page client-side applications, and now back again <laughs> to the server side. Only the only difference is that now the server side is JavaScript instead of PHP. Yeah, it's funny that way. Although the, the big motivation for having the back end in JavaScript is because the front end is JavaScript. So now if we're moving everything to the back end, and then why does it need to be JavaScript? Do you mind if I jump anyway. in? Oh, for sure. Go for it. I actually have a question for Theo. He said that he considers Click and Click City to be back end. And I, that kind of surprised me. And I would like him to elaborate on it. I see Quick as being totally front end and Quick City. Yes, I can see Quick City being the back end. But I'm just curious why he thinks both of them. I should specify first that I have struggled for a while to truly draw the lines between Quick and Quick City. I've talked with Ryan a bit. I've meant to hit you up about it, but I've been way too busy lately. It's my understanding that both Quick and Quick City have a server, and Quick City's more the routing rather than the actual like server behaviors of Quick. And due to Quick's focus on resumability, that some amount of runtime on a server is necessary for the core Quick experience to work. Is that correct? I would say the Quick City is the server, and Quick is agnostic, like it can run anywhere, just like React can in theory run on server, and it does in case of an SSR. Okay. Quick is the same exact way. Then I was misinformed. Then Quick City is a backend framework, and Quick is front end primarily. Okay. The other point I wanted to make is I find it interesting this whole this debate about SPA, MPA, and where do we go. I think it comes down to where exactly the router is. Is it on the server or is it on the client? Ryan will oftentimes agree with that. And the point I just wanted to make here is that with Quick City, we blurred this because we say the router starts on a server, so it's an MPA, but then we can download it to the client if you want to. And so then you can turn transition into an SBA application. So the whole MPA, SBA difference, I think, is a side effect of hydration. And once you remove hydration, the whole side effect of MPA, SBA difference dis disappears. Yeah, but Mishko, do you ever really want to? Won't the majority of quick applications effectively run as most of the time, if not all the time, as MPA? I don't see why they would necessarily want it. It's a, it depends on the use case, right? If you're building an e-commerce website, then yes, you want an MPA. If you're building a complicated dashboard, then no, you want an SPA. And so it's a specific decision. It's not a thing of the framework. How do you make this decision, by the way? You choose whether you do an ahref or you do a link component, right? So if you say you want a link component, you're basically making a client-side navigation. If you just do ahref, you're making a server-side navigation. So by choosing the quick link component, I'm effectively saying the following navigation has to happen on the client-side. No, it doesn't, it doesn't say it has to happen. It says it can happen on the client side. Things always can happen on a server, but in some cases, they can also happen on the client. You know what? At the end of the day, I don't really care that much. If I can provide the user with a good 
experience, then why not do it as MPA? And with the work that the Google, the Chrome example is doing with the transition API, we might get to the point where, you know, it, it's, it's all good with MPA, assuming Safari ever actually adopts it, hey, which I is a big if. I have to chime. You guys are absolute legends up here. I have to chime in with it with a really cringe example. We used to make we used to make these apps in Flash, and what do we call it? Called dashboard apps, and like load all this data and all this dashboard, and you get like these sub second response times. You're like, because it's all the data is loaded there, it takes a few seconds to load it up, but once it ends, and it's just it's all bing bing. You got your your you can drill through data. You can selectors and switches and different things. You get all it's a Christmas tree. It's lighting up. It's so beautiful. This is very similar. What is what is someone's argument? Not Charles Babbage, but Sebastian Mark Bash was making the argument for, okay, if we're server routing and we have progressive enhancement with clients, so ultimately downloading to the client, so you can have that memory in memory, a you know, nice client side routing, real quick switch, nice transition type of thing, and it's not hurting your performance because you're still getting that server sent all that from the from the server you're still getting you're still getting that initially you know, all that data but then it's just then ultimately progressively being enhanced by loading it caching it on the client so you get this quick switch nice transition what is, what is super super late. i just wanted to pop up and say hey quick and respond to the stuff about my decision yeah, framework man. thanks I'll for joining be live so if y'all want something to hang out in after this come check out my twitch peace y'all okay bro nifty can you ask what your question is in five seconds. I'm not sure exactly what you're getting at here. Oh yeah, what's Sebastian Mark Batch made an argument for progressive enhancement. And so what would, he was saying, he was saying, okay, if you can still send it from the server, but not, and not lose anything by downloading it to the client, in other words, hydration, but progressive hydration, like progressive enhancement, progressive hydration. So it's not kill, it's not hurting your experience. Okay, one thing Dan, remarked on earlier with e-commerce was like people want to click they're not getting responses so they eject and you lose the customer so that's bad we don't want that but what if you're not losing the customer what if you get it all from the server initially like rec server component or whatever but then you can also cache everything onto the client progressively as the it, it's it so first of all yeah sure why not main issue potential not main issue but a potential big issue with that approach is that you no longer have a single source of truth and this saying about what are the two most difficult things in computer science they're naming things caching and off by one errors so yeah so caching is hard to do correctly make sure that you have a correct data and also the fact that you need to decide about which strategy you use when syncing data back to the server are you like using an optimistic approach what do you do when the server rejects it stuff like that it does introduce a lot of complications potentially but yeah if you can do it you can certainly do it that way and in a lot of cases it's another thing is that it's this whole thing about mpas and assays is about where to hold this hot potato of the state of the state am i going to manage state on the client side or can I just do it with on the server side? And obviously it makes the life a whole lot easier for the front-end developers if they don't really need to deal with state. Now, realistically, you do need to deal with some state because you do need some state for various components, but the global state, if you can keep it on the server, good for you. Hopefully that kind of 
relates to, to, to the point you were making or the question. Yeah, sir. So push the kind of React has a, a thing where say lift state up to the app level instead of get it out of the component, pull it out of the component, lift it, lift the state up. So it would be like not, it would be like lifting state out. Yeah, the whole server components thing, by the way, is also about how to manage state, where you want to keep as much state as you possibly can, I think, in the lowest possible server component. Um, I want to hit on this with Mishko, because when I had Mishko on FS Jam, he gave a, a direct comparison between React server components and resumability. Would you be able to rehash that for us right now? Also, it was a question for me or for Dan? Yeah, no, I was just curious if you could compare how quick compares to React Server Components. I remember you were saying that you felt like React Server Components was like a nice stopgap, but it requires the developers to think about things that they shouldn't necessarily have to think about. And you feel like resumability is like the best way to actually achieve that fully. Yeah, so obviously I'm biased over here, right? Yeah, so React Server Components basically have this kind of a transition where you're on a server and then you say, oh, now I'm transitioning to the client and you can only do this transition once. You're on a server component and then you become a client component. And so across this transition line, you can't just pass anything across. Like you can only pass data, you can't pass in functions, listeners, state or any of that stuff. And so it becomes, I would say, you're very aware where that line is. And so the nice thing about Quick is that line becomes extremely blurred. Like you can pass in functions, you can pass in closures, you can pass in state data, et cetera. You can register listeners on a server and then have the listeners fire on the client. You can set up reactions on a server and have the reactivity happen on the client. And as a result, like every single component in Quick is basically, it starts its life on a server and then maybe transitions to the client or maybe never does, depending on whether or not it's interactive or not. So it's a very different mental model than what React Server Component is trying to do. I will say though that given where React is, I think React Server Components is the obvious and the only choice they have in order to improve it, right? To do something completely different, you have to abandon uh, the mental model that you currently have. And that's a tall order, as you pointed out earlier. I would add two things to that, if I may. First of all, I would have to remark that I think that if you would ask a React core contributor, they might say that this separation or distinction between server components then client components is actually like, quote unquote, a good thing because it forces you to think in terms of the application architecture, what do you do where? And this is, you can debate that, but I think that's what they might say in, in this context. I do have to note two additional limitations with this whole server component thing. One is the fact, like I said before, that server components only run on the server but client components can run either on the client or on the server, which is odd when you think about it. So that's one issue. Another issue, if you remember, one of the reasons we liked hooked, hooks so much when they came out is that it became very easy to transition between stateful and stateless components. It used to be that stateless components were functions and stateful components were classes. So every time you want to transition from one to another, you needed to, you need to effectively refactor your entire component. And with uh, hooks, you made it stateful by adding a use state you made it stateless again by removing the use state. It became really easy. Transitioning between client-side and server-side components 
is not a trivial transition. Like I mentioned before, the asynchronicity model is completely different. One can have state, the other, by definition, cannot have state and stuff like that. So we've created, again, this dichotomy between two types of components that you really need to think about when you're designing your application, because obviously you can refactor it afterwards, but it becomes much more challenging. I want to go back, actually. We said we are going to ask Misko his opinion on what he would recommend to the two teams I talked about. Uh, maybe the answer is quick and quick, but I want to give him a chance to respond to that. And then I actually have a follow-up for Dan if we don't have any other questions from the audience. But go ahead. Yeah, so just remind me the question again. The question is, imagine you're a team building something net new. You're building a new site. What framework should you pick if you want to avoid this problem? I assume the answer would be quick. But what if you're a website that has a existing legacy code base, a ton of lines of code, it's written in React. We can pick, I think we had said e-commerce is one of the, what would you recommend they do? Should they rewrite the whole thing? What choice should they make? Should they wait for React server components, see if it solves their problem? What's the practical, because it's, most of us aren't authoring frameworks. So for the rest of us out there who are trying to build products on top of them and experiences on top of them, what recommendation do we have right now that we can tell teams? And that was the question. Yeah. So before I answer that, I want to point out something else. We yeah. were talking about Quick, and I think Dan was saying what the odds of Quick would be. When I talk about these things, I really talk about this idea of intrinsic and extrinsic properties, right? Mm -hmm. So the fact that Quick is new, that's an extrinsic property. The fact that Quick doesn't have maybe the best documentation, the most amount of blog posts, the community, etc., all those things are extrinsic issues that over time, hopefully, they will be solved. Intrinsic thing would be like, oh, React has to do hydration, and or rather, most frameworks have to do hydration. There's a very little thing you can do to fix it. There's all these hacks and workarounds, etc. But fundamentally, it's an intrinsic property of the system. That's a and really great distinction. Yeah, sorry, keep going. Yeah, I just wanted to point that out when we were talking about Quick. Like, I noticed that all of the kind of feedback about like why not use Quick they all fell into the category of extrinsic properties. And one thing is also true that, uh, which is also an extrinsic property, kind of intrinsic is on the border, which is that we just don't know. As you build complicated applications, we might discover that there are certain things that are actually hard and quick. I don't know, it's hard to say, that time will tell. So that's a mixture of both. As far as when you should use Quick, there's the generic answer, which is Quick was designed to really solve any problem that React, Swell, Angular, Vue, etc. solve, right? So it's a generic solution. Just to contrast this to something more specific, like Astro, even on the documentation side, says, don't use us to build websites, so use us to build blocks. So that's not a general solution. That's a specific thing to a specific problem. So could you say that maybe Astro is for sites, but Quick is for apps? Eh. That, that would be a reasonable thing to say, except that I, my point is that Quick will perform just as well for sites as it will for apps. It's, it's the best of both worlds. Like you don't have to make a choice. Am I building an app or a site? You can just build whatever. And in both cases, you will get the best okay. possible so that's outcome out of it. Because I feel like I heard you say the opposite on JS Party the other day. Because And this is something that Ben Holmes pointed out to me is he was saying that your Quick is not leaning into apps. They're saying we're for everything. And I was like, no, actually, they were saying they're leaning into apps. They're not for everything. So which is it? I think the way the architecture of Quick is set up, like if you end up building a static website, we will deliver just static content, right? So from... The point of view but of is that a good use case? Just because it can do it doesn't mean it should do it. Ah, okay, that's a good question. It's a good distinction. We certainly favor 
heavily are focused on the application side of things because we think that's the harder problem to solve. And I so, think you should lean into that because I think we have now people that are coming forward like Asho saying we're for content, not for apps. And we're looking for something to say we're for apps, not for content. Niche. Yeah. Niche. Yeah. The deeper you go, the nicher you get, the more virality everything you're going to get, I feel like. So that's right. Authenticity. Yeah. Right. So the original question was like, should when should you use Quick? And so I'm going to say that given how new Quick is right now, the place I think you would you should use Quick is that if you have a complex application and you really need the good performance start, startup, you need to fix the hydration problem, right? This is the place where as of right now, like Quick has no competition. If you need a complex site that go complex application and hydration is really a problem for you and this is causing you a headache, then I think the only option you really have is quick. So I would say this is the best place to start. Over time, as these extrinsic problems disappear, I think quick will become a good thing for other solutions as well. Okay, that makes sense. So use it right now where it shines and differentiates the most, which is on the hydration issue. So would yeah. that mean even if it means rewriting your tens of lines, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of lines of code. So we in. have yeah. uh, no. So we have a good transition story, right? If you use a React application, you can do Quick React, and what Quick React essentially does is essentially the same thing as Astro. You get islands of reactivity, but it does it in a way which I think one of the hindrances with creating islands is the inter-island communication, right? Yeah. Like within components, you have mechanisms for inter-component communication, but the moment you come across islands, like Ah, no problem, not ours. <laughs> yeah, you're on an island, yeah. And you and so the nice thing about Quick is that Quick solves the inter-component communication and it treats React as an island, but it solves the communication channel between it. So you don't have to like mentally be like, oh, this is an island, and therefore like how do I talk to this other island? It's the answer is easy. You just talk to it through Quick because Quick has all the fundamental mechanisms for component communication. So there is a migration story and I think that's a pretty good one. Okay, that's really helpful. I was not aware of Quick React, so thank you for that. Back to Dan, let's set aside what you think is the best approach. If you were to predict a year from now or two years from now, which approach do you think is going to win in the ecosystem in solving migration? <laughs> It depends on your definition of win. If you're asking me which meta framework will likely have the greatest amount of use, I would probably bet on Next.js. Not necessarily because it's best or most appropriate, but because it's quote unquote the future of React. And React is the current king of the hill and that's unlikely to change in the near term. And I consider two to three years to be a still effectively near term. There's, uh, wait, I wanna drill into that for a second. There's two ways to interpret that. One is React used to be next just simply because of its momentum, despite the issues with hydration, or you could interpret that, that even though it's an inferior solution, React server component solves it well enough that it doesn't, like, it solves it well enough that they keep going. Which is it in your head? I'll put it this way. Yeah. Let's first of all start with the current situation. The current situation with Next.js is abysmal. 
And by abysmal, I mean that if we look at the Chrome user experience report data for the ratio of sites having good oh, performance. Yeah. For React in general, it's around 36 or 37%, so about a third. You would expect that for Next.js, it would be better because Next.js provides SSR. Guess what? It's actually worse. Next.js is only 20%. So the likelihood of you getting good performance when you built a site with Next.js is currently one in five. That's not a good situation to be in. Now, maybe server components will completely solve this problem. I don't know. Like I said, there are issues with it. The main two issues, the main issues with it is first, as I mentioned, is the fact that React itself has become heavier in order to support server components. So we need to see how these things offset each other. The second issue is that just because React, the Next.js supports server components doesn't mean that all the projects will immediately start using it. In fact, the reason that they support both the app folder and the pages folder is because they know it's going to be a transition. And I don't know how long that transition will take. And the third point is that my experience is that many React slash Next developers don't really know how to use React slash Next very well. Again, it's a kind of a harsh statement, but I think that unfortunately it's true. And server components add complexity. They've, they're not removing complexity, they're adding complexity. In a, lot of way, in a lot of ways, this is like with the edge functions and edge functionality. Edge functionality is opening interesting use cases, but it's doing so by adding complexity, not by removing complexity. And if we are in a situation where most front-end developers don't necessarily know how to use these tools effectively, Adding complexity may not be the direction in which we want to go, ideally. So I'm hopeful, but I'm not really all that optimistic, given the current reality. Interesting. So I interrupted you on your predictions. So your first one was next continues simply because it's the biggest. Was there more you had on what you predicted would be the likely outcome? Again, <laughs> it's almost like predicting the stock market. For example, there's an interesting story around Remix now because of the fact that Shopify purchased it and Toby Lotke, uh, Shopify CEO, even made the statement that he believes the Remix or Hydrogen is going to win. And you know what? The Shopify is big enough to really push Remix slash Hydrogen really strongly. They can create some sort of a certification program that if you want a certified Shopify expert or agency, they'll have to be using Remix. Time will tell. That won't mean that they'll capture the market, but it does. It will, potentially will mean that they will have a significant segment of the market way locked in to their approach and in a base for additional expansion. Time will tell how successful they are in that. It's very difficult for me to say. It depends on the story they're able to tell and the experience they're able to provide. Quick and solid, I love them both, but it's early days effectively for both of them in a lot of ways. It's really difficult for me to, to guess as to their success. If we look at as a basis for 
for prediction, that actually on the, potentially makes me a little bit less optimistic than I might have otherwise been, because Svelte has been telling this great DX story for a long time now, if you think about it. It's, it's a good number of years now. And how much market have they been able to take away from React? I think, again, let, I'm doing, I'm quickly checking, again, looking at the Chrome User Experience Report, the website, they have this kind of dashboard where you can look at, like I said, you can compare the performance of the various frameworks. But interestingly, you can also look at usage numbers, which means so they have something like 10 million websites in their database. So we can look, those are the top 10 million websites in terms of Chrome based traffic. So if we look there, and so we look at React and we look at Svelte, so can you guess how many out of that 1 million, 10 million are React websites? I think I might have said the number before, I don't recall. It's actually, it surprised me for how high it was. It's over 900,000 on mobile. So on mobile sessions, out of the 10 million websites in Chrome user experience, about one-tenth is React. Thousand. I don't know. Maybe quick or solid will able to like break through. Now, eventually, we do get to see these occasional shakeups in the market. Angular was the king of the hill for a while, and then React came along and replaced it. So it could happen. But when it happened, nobody saw it coming, really. So it's hard for me to say, unfortunately. Yeah, that reminds me of the documentary on React that just came out that people should check out. So what, maybe that's what you think will happen. What do you want to happen? I think that we need to have this sort of a shakeup because if we look at it just from the perspective of performance and also from the, from the DX performance perspective as well. But let's put DX aside for a second. Think that where we are is, not, is just not good enough. We're doing a disservice to our users. Like I said, only a third of React sessions are, have good performance. With Next, it's even lower. The numbers for the other frameworks are, the main frameworks are the same. Quick looks to have better numbers, but it's still early days. The number of the sites they have in this database is so low that it's almost statistically insignificant. And so, yes, something needs to happen. Performance needs to improve. And by the way, we'll be transitioning from the FID metric for interactivity to, mm. to INP. And when that happens, we're going to look back in fondness on that 30% of sites with good performance because it's going to drop like a rock. It's probably going to be somewhere around 20%. So yeah, we are not in a good place in terms of performance. So something has to change. Whether React server components are going to be enough, well, that brings me to the other half of the story, which is like I said, I think React was created with these amazing DX principles of the immutability and building user UI as a function as a, by composing functions together. It's an amazing story, which unfortunately did not quite pan out in reality. And the result is that today the DX story for React is much too difficult from my perspective. Most React developers, from the way I see it, can't really handle React's complexity. And again, something needs to change. And currently, they're only making it more complex. Now, I understand that they're looking at this sort of thing like a React compiler thingy. I forget the name. Maybe that will be the magic bullet. I don't know. 
Time will tell. But currently, the DX story just isn't good enough. And so there we also have an opportunity because I think, for example, Solid potentially has a better DX story. But then Svelte supposedly has a much better DX story. And like I said, like Svelte usage isn't skyrocketing. The React compiler is called React Forget. I had never even heard about this. It's very interesting. Yeah. And it's yeah. because it's because this the DX story is just becoming ridiculously complicated. And it has real cost because it makes it harder and harder to engineer systems and when you deal with that complexity. And definitely there are organizations that I think are facing exactly what you're describing. Actually on both sides. On and on the performance side, I think we at least have there's two at a really high level economic mechanisms. So one of the things I said was I said in a panel a, a while back was what's great about Core of Vitals is it finally got people to to care about performance. Like you could, we've all known like faster sites have better conversion rate, but now we could say actually it might improve your your search engine ranking. So whatever problems the Core of Vitals shine a spotlight on, and as they migrate to IMP, it's going to help. I think will help drive attention in the ecosystem to people solving it. And I asked the question earlier, why do you think people are paying attention to it now before they did? And you made a great point that it was because people hadn't encountered it. I also feel like there was the pre-core vitals era, and then there was the post. And in the post one, these now are more front and center in the mindset of not just engineers, but people who are adjacent to them that tied to the business ROI. And I think I the other side, yeah, go ahead. No, I'm saying that I totally agree with what you're saying. And again, if you look at the timelines, it's totally on the money that when core vitals came along and especially this SEO angle that that Google initially or spin that Google initially put on it, which I find amusing because with all due respect, you should care more about core vitals because of the bounce rate than because of the SEO impact. But it took SEO to get people to care. Who am I to complain? But the funny thing about core core vitals and hydration is that in a lot of ways hydration doesn't really get in the way as much as you might expect of the current core vitals oh yeah it's um, like most people pass fit even with really large pages it's not a, a great metric in that respect sorry go ahead no exactly so fit is core vitals that google came out with two great metrics and one not so great not so good one so LCP is great, CLS is great, FID not so much. And unfortunately, FID is the one that's most impacted by measures interactivity. So like you said, even though a site can have horrendous interactivity, it would still get very great, F, potentially get great and a great FID. Um, slightly there. I did not like CLS, the first version that came out. I thought it was very skewed against single page apps because it would just accumulate the CLS, but they fixed that. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, you're correct about that. So yeah, I'm thinking about CLS as it currently is. You're yes. correct. But CLS, CLS is not really that much dependent on whether or not you use a framework and which framework you yeah. use. It's more dependent on how, if you make proper use of CLS and some HTML tags, that's more or less it. And with regard to LCP, again, you might create problems for LCP because you get you can get contention due to resources but they just make your JavaScript deferred or something. Or just, you could get around that in a lot of ways. 
especially these days where you have priority hints. So LCP is less affected by hydration. CLS is not really affected by hydration. And FID, everybody passes with flying colors anyway. So the funny thing is that fixing hydration does not really impact core vitals that much. If you look at the way, I don't know if Mishko is still on, on the line or not, but the way that they are currently promoting quick is less by showing core vitals and more by showing lighthouse because lighthouse with the, the TBT metric is much more impacted by hydration because TBT is much more akin to INP kind of that in that regard. When Google switches over from FID to INP and everybody gets smacked to the face, then to the back of the head or whatever, then solutions like Quick will start to shine. Misko's back. He was he went back to listener, but looks like he's back on the stage. Do you want to comment on that? Sorry, Mister, because I pushed the wrong button and I got kicked off, etc. You were. I was saying that unfortunately, the current core vitals don't properly reflect the bad impact that hydration has on performance, which is why you guys are primarily showing the difference using synthetic measurements like Lighthouse and less with core vitals. But that that will change once we hopefully switch from FID to INP. I think the reason we show off Lighthouse course is because they're just easier to get and measure. Core Web Vitals takes a month of real user data. Yeah, that's but also it's, true. It's, that's uh, also true. It's super hard because you have to do a change and then you have to wait a month and see if the change had an impact, etc. I can tell you that on Builder.io website, we did switch our landing page to Quick and we went from failing to passing and we're all green right now. So it is... Um, definitely having an impact in all things. And I think Corvette Vitals does actually show that hydration is problem. I'm not familiar with too many I'm sure Ishan probably has a, something to add here. He's a wizard at this kind of stuff. I want to hear the rest of what Nisko has, and then I'll comment in or try. That's basically yeah. saying that I think Corvette Vitals does actually show this, but I'm not an expert on it, so I'll let you speak. It, I would agree, actually, with Dan, which is, in our experience, at least in the verticals we primarily have customers in, fit is not reflective of the actual JavaScript load that the page is facing. I think TBT definitely is more reflective. And when INP happens, it will be, as he described, a slap to the face. I One thing on Lighthouse, though, I hate... I've always hated the TI metric. I'm glad they're finally getting rid of that. I felt it was arbitrary and not necessarily reflective of performance in all cases. I have run into issues where TTI had a bunch of heuristics that would penalize doing smart things like prefetching, and it would drive me crazy. PT is a little better reflective, but the other key thing about FIT is like how, because it's, as we talked about, right, it's based on real user interaction. So if you can control like when the person clicks, right, that affects your FIT. Like you, if you, somebody clicks on the page and that's the first interaction and maybe for whatever reason you've held off your JavaScript for a certain reason, then you'll still get a good fit. It's very easy to evade and having a loading screen, right? As long as the handler is able to run, it, it could fool it. And there may not be something on the page. And that's why I think IMP is promising because it'll hopefully catch some of that and it will create that economic incentive again, that feedback loop that'll 
start getting the ecosystem paying attention to the problem and look for solutions like Quest. So a few comments over what you yeah. just said. So first of all, I really agree with the points that you made. I will say that TTI is gone, but not forgotten because TBT is actually measured from FCP until TTI. So TTI remains as in the context of TBT. But putting that aside, I totally agree with what you said about FID and interactions. In fact, that was exactly a problem that we saw when I was at Wix, that initially it took us so long to download some of the JavaScript because we had a lot of JavaScript back then that people would actually click something before the JavaScript even started running. And they would and nothing would happen but it would still count as a click. And consequently, we would have great FID. And when we actually started improving the download time and make JavaScript smaller and got the hydration to run faster, FID actually degraded initially, which- Yes, because you're changing the user behavior. Yeah, exactly. But like you said, I can, for example, let's think about store page where it takes me a while to run the hydration. So don't show the purchase button until the hydration is done. And I improve FID that way. You can, but obviously that's terrible because if somebody looks at your page and they can't find a button to actually make the purchase, then again, they'll leave. You need to be careful when you're trying to optimize for metrics rather than for (laughs) your actual use case. Uh, I think we have someone from the audience who came to ask questions. Sean, first time caller, I believe. I am. Yeah. Thanks for having me, guys. I've heard some whispers about INP replacing FID is there like a timeline on that? Uh, as the core web vital is like one of the top three ranking factors or whatever you want to call it for core web vitals. From what I've heard from Google and from what I'm hearing on the, the W3C web performance group, no, there is no timeline for it. They've not even said that it will definitely happen. Okay. So yeah. Just like time to first bite or the other. I forget the other yeah, the, the fa- they're still calling it a beta metric. And the fact that it's now collected and shown and graphed and whatnot makes me optimistic about it. But my, I think the problem is that they're worried that we have a bit of an echo. Maybe it's me. But anyway, I think that they're worried that the numbers will drop so low when they introduce it that some people will just give up and say, okay, we can't achieve good performance and that's it. So they're worried that potentially switching to it will potentially maybe create more harm than good. But you need to ask the Google people about that. Maybe Annie, Sully, or Michael. Cool thing. Might yeah. say something about I did notice the same thing just for context on TTI back in the day. Potentially functionally infinite TTI if you've done preloading or pagination or yeah, any of those otherwise yeah. relatively smart things to do. So I'm glad to see that retired. Yep. Yeah, I completely agree. That's why it drove me crazy. I had a, a talk I gave at JS Mobile Conf in 2019 where I put together a really trivial example, but I just kept doing what you would do for preloading and it just the network never went quiet and so tti thinks oh we're going on forever and the page is not done loading but you could clearly see it was technically interactive so there's a interesting google doc i found where google's actually released google docs charting the history of how they come up with these metrics it's actually a lot of work that they do and there's one for tti and it used to be called something else but it had interactive in the name Time's and they talk about how they, yeah Thank you. Yeah. And they work through how they empirically arrived at this. They actually looked at a basket of websites 
and then picked a bunch of heuristic that seemed to capture for most of them the right behavior. But that means if you're smart and an outlier, you actually get penalized. You make a tweet so, reply with that, and we'll pin it to the top. I actually haven't been able to find it again. I will find okay. it and try to pin it at some point. So I want to be respectful of time, Dan. I don't know how much more time you have. We've been talking about problems in web performance. First, let me find out how much more time you have. I want to be very respectful. Oh, we can go for another 10 minutes. Okay. I wanted to talk about how you didn't like AMP, but we can leave that for another day. But I'll, if you've got a quick answer there. It sounds like he didn't like the idea of AMP. He never actually worked with AMP. I, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I didn't like the fact that it was a proprietary Google technology tied to proprietary Google services. That was my main issue with it. Also that and the fact that it created this kind of a weird dissonance where you created a special version of your web page. Like the fact, so I worked at Wix and we and at that time and back then Wix was a lot less response, responsive than it is today. I'm talking about responsive pages that can automatically adjust to different screen sizes. Yeah. So you needed to build your web pages twice, once for desktop, once for mobile. Just to clarify, Wix is a whole lot better on that front these days. But back then, that was really the case. So AMP really made it, in order to support AMP, you really had to force the user to build the web page three times. Once for desktop, one for mobile, one for AMP. And AMP would have those weird restrictions that don't exist anywhere else. It was a really hard sell. Yeah, I can empathize with that. So... In, in the React Storefront framework, what we had to do is we had to try and cross-compile your components from React components into AMP components. So I totally agree with that overhead. From a just performance standpoint, I just thought there were a lot of great ideas in the framework that I think other frameworks are going to eventually pick up. Like the use of Workerize.js was really ahead of the curve. I think it reminds me a lot of some of what like Misco is doing with Party Town. So I thought there were a lot of things just, I know, Find exchanges are controversial, but I think it's a great idea. I think there are a lot of smart ideas in there. And what was novel to me most of all about it as a lesson is it was a framework that was user first. It didn't put developer experience first, it put it second. And I think that's partially why it also failed. I've seen comments from developers who say, user, I love it. It's magical. The sites load so fast. But as a developer, I hate it because of all the things you just talked about. So that makes sense. But I still think it was a very interesting technology from that perspective. Maybe to close this out, I'm curious what you're excited about on the performance front as a whole. You mentioned, for example, one of the things I can't. I wish we had yesterday, which was the transition API. Maybe tell people about that. What else do you think is on the horizon for pe people to look forward to beyond hydration, which we spent most of our time talking about? First and foremost, what's really exciting for me is that performance is front and center. It used to be that only really specific people within organizations would care about performance, if at all. I'll always remember a conversation that I had with product manager who shall remain unnamed, who basically said, I asked them why they don't actually spec performance as part of the requirement. And they said, first, we don't know how or actually he said first don't know how to spec performance that has changed thanks to core vitals and other things and second his comment was expect developers to build fast anyway because that's what developers do 
turns out that's definitely not the case. And these days, the situation is much improved in the sense that people, a lot more people are aware that performance is important, that it need, you, need, you need to invest in it thanks to core vitals, to Google search, and also to a lot of research that has come out around it. And you don't really need to convince people that performance is important, and that's good for me because I've really built a career around it. So that's one thing I'm really happy about. And it seems to me that in the framework world, performance is really front and center these days. Everybody is talking about how fast they can make their websites. So yeah, that's their framework. Sorry. So yeah, that's great. I'm really happy about that. I'm really happy that frameworks are tackling the performance situation head on because the current situation, as I said, is pretty abysmal. Yeah, that's a great sea change. Is there anything else in terms of the technology front? Like the we mentioned the shared element API or other things that you're excited about? I'm really excited about the work that's being, I'm simultaneously excited and scared by all the work that's happening around compilers. I'm old enough to remember a time where we all just wrote JavaScript. Now it seems that nobody is writing JavaScript anymore. Everything is being compiled. The whole point of the web was that you would just write some JavaScript in Notepad Plus and then upload it by FTP and do an F5. And job done. No build step, no nothing. And those days are long gone. Everything is compiled this way these days. And it seems that we're just doubling down on, on that approach. Nobody codes in JavaScript. It's the, this, the space is called the JavaScript Jam, but nobody's coding in JavaScript anymore. It's actually funny, me and Scott, were, and each time we were talking about this beforehand, that Brad Traversy just released like a 37-hour vanilla JavaScript course. And it's fundamental knowledge that a lot of web developers, I think, understand they need to learn. But you're correct that there's like this layer of abstraction that's always created between the actual what you're writing and what is JavaScript. But this is why I think projects like Svelte and Solid, they're really good about having REPLs where you can compile what you're writing into the vanilla JavaScript. Then you can kind of see that translation. I feel like that's a really useful exercise. But what you're talking about where you just write the thing, upload it to FTP, and then F5, that for me, the modern equivalent of that is push to Git, my deployment platform then runs it for me. So it's even simpler actually because it's a single step. Oh, yeah. So like I said, on the one hand, I'm really excited about what's being enabled by com by compilers. I think Ryan made the, this point to me, which is excellent, which is the fact that JavaScript doesn't really have reactivity baked into the language. And consequently, if you want reactivity, you either need to use some sort of heavy-duty library slash framework, I don't know, maybe something like RxJS or Mobex or something like that, or you use a compiler. And when, for example, if you write Svelte code, Svelte looks like JavaScript, but it's totally not. It's a completely different programming language that has like the same syntax, but really different semantics due to the fact that Svelte does have reactivity baked into the programming language. On the one hand, I'm really excited about the possibilities that this opens up. On the other hand, I'm worried about the fact that we're losing touch with what's actually happening and we're potentially even deluding ourselves into thinking that we're doing one thing where we're actually doing something else. Do you think when we went from assembly to COBOL or Fortran, there was a similar sentiment? Oh, yeah, for sure. 
right. Uh, yeah, go ahead. We had a great episode on JavaScript Jabber called uh, The Story of Mel, which which we don't have time to go into details, but I highly recommend listening to it because it exactly encapsulates that time period when people were writing stuff just in, not even assembly, just hexadecimal. Oh, yeah. The ultimate gray beard is how I would describe it. Who was so gray in the beard that everyone showed up and said, my beard's not that gray. How can I write this? He says, sorry, grow a beard. Exactly. Yeah, it is. It is similar. But the thing is that the funny thing is that we still call ourselves JavaScript developers. Like I said, this space is called JavaScript Jam. It's not. It's when the developers moved from assembly to Fortran, they knew they left assembly behind. They knew they were now Fortran developers. We've ended JavaScript in a way, but we still think ourselves as JavaScript developers, even though we are probably not writing JavaScript anymore. It's a funny, situ funny weird situation that we're in, I think. It's an interesting point. Uh, the only analogy that comes to mind is it's like how we think of ourselves as the heirs of the ancient Greeks and Romans in some way, and it's we're not actually in those countries. Yeah, it's exactly. That's interesting. We're right at almost a minute to go. So Dan, really thank you for this amazing run through on hydration and performance. Misco for also jumping in and everyone Theo. else who participated. Theo as well. I know you're on your stream right now. And Bro Nifty, Shah who came up first time guest. But again, I want to make sure people know we are, we call ourselves an open mic for everything web development and JavaScript related. You can raise your hand and come to the stage, whether you're a beginner or an expert, we want to hear from you. And I just want to call out, if you're not on a newsletter, javascriptjam.com, you can go sign up. You can also see our recordings of both the podcast and, and these And if anyone episodes. up here on the stage gave you some value, follow those people. <laughs> totally. Yeah, they'll <laughs> probably give you value elsewhere too. Yeah. Dan, any last words before I hand it over to Scott to take us out? No, I think it was a great experience. I wanted to thank you a lot for inviting me on. It was awesome to get all these amazing people on the call of all of a sudden, Theo, Mishko, and all the rest. So yeah, it was a great conversation. I had lots of fun. Hopefully I can do it again sometime. Great. Thank you, Scott. Fantastic. Yeah. All right, everybody, let's give you some hearts, some claps, some 100, some love. Woo! Thank you so much, everybody, for participating and, and joining us here today. It's been phenomenal, really. This has been a really great one today. Thank you so much. And just don't forget, okay, every Wednesday, 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, this is where we will be. Come and join us again just forever, all right? <laughs> Perpetually, okay? All right, thanks, y'all, so much. Appreciate you, and we'll see you in the next one. Oh, woo! <laughs> Love that. All right, y'all. Thank you so much. See you next time.